I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Professor David Slutsky. He is an applied microeconomist whose research focuses on health economics, labor economics, and public policy. At the University of Kansas, he's affiliated with the Department of Economics, the Department of Population Health, and the Institute for Policy and Social Research, and serves as the interim chair of the Department of Speech Language Hearing, Sciences and Disorders at the University of Kansas, and the executive director of the American Society of Health Economists. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a research fellow at IZA, the Institute for Labor Economics in Bonn, Germany. David and I have known each other for, I don't know, about 16 years. That that was what I calculated this morning also. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, David, it's great to see you and thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. It's nice to be here. So at, at the University of Kansas, you've taught a class on the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. And you've written and spoken about it as well. We're now over a decade out from the passage of the bill. Republicans failed to overturn it during the Trump presidency. And I think it's safe to say that the ACA is almost certainly here to stay. What do you think the ACA did well? What do you think it didn't do well? Where do you see improvements or stopgaps that need to be passed or made? It's a great question. So Doug Elmendorf, who's now the dean of the Kennedy School, but was the head of the Congressional Budget Office during the ACA ratification, said the ACA had three goals. Leave employer-sponsored insurance as it is, as much as possible, cover everybody, and don't raise the deficit. And within those three goals, this was about all you were going to get, in the sense that the ACA provides two primary mechanisms, expanding Medicaid eligibility and subsidies on a competitive exchange to get the 5, 10 million Americans who didn't have health insurance coverage before to have health insurance coverage now. That has happened. The uninsurance rate is the lowest it's ever been. The benefits of insurance, of reduced financial distress, of better access to healthcare have been reasonably achieved. The Medicaid expansion, as we'll discuss in a little bit, I think, is still not complete. Though those of you know, you and I are too young to probably remember that Arizona didn't expand the original Medicaid until around 1990. So it is a long process, and we still have a long way to go, especially here in Kansas. The other piece. On the subsidies, the federal government just this year um, addressed an issue where the subsidies arbitrarily stopped when you hit 400% of the poverty, federal poverty level. So there's still tweaking to go. The lack of a bipartisan mechanism to even do normal, twe- what used to be normal tweaking has made that slower and more difficult. But by and large, the goal of getting people health insurance is there. There are other pieces that I think are really helpful, but less well discussed. Things like removing lifetime maximums, making it more difficult for your insurance to drop you when you get sick because of a minor clerical error on a form, making sure your insurance covers essential benefits, letting the federal government and the executive branch experiment on ways to bundle payments and lower costs without hurting outcomes, and then if they're effective, actually implement them without going back to Congress. This is an even less well-known provision that delegated a bunch of actual legislative authority over to the executive branch. These pieces are all there and are all making a difference. The big things left is this is by and large health insurance reform, that it's not doing enough to keep costs down. It's not doing enough to remove and change perverse incentives. It's not doing much to, it's not doing as much as it could to improve the financial situations of households that are still exposed to substantial risk. And 
I think it took an absurdly complicated system and added another layer of complexity. And one thing I also want to talk about, you know, is we spend more per capita on healthcare than almost any other country in the world. And that doesn't count the amount of time that patients spend managing the finances of their own healthcare. If you added that in, the amount of our, like people who are at their jobs not working because they have to make phone calls during business hours, that's another drain on it. And this did really nothing to fix that or almost nothing to fix that compared to many things it could have done. The, uh, you mentioned these perverse incentives. Yeah. What are some of those? So much of medicine is still what we call fee-for-service, which is where, I think as you're aware as a provider, the provider gets paid per thing they do. And the problem is that incentivizes the provider to do more. Even the best meaning, most honest, most altruistic provider still has that incentive there and still probably has a medical director who is pushing that because that's how you grow the revenue of the practice. There are lots of rules about conflicts of interest that I have to go, that lawyers have to deal with, that physicians have to deal with. But when your provider is recommending different treatment options, they don't have to disclose which one makes them more revenue, which one makes them more profit. Even though, even if they believe they're not affected by that, I don't think that's true in aggregate because they're human just like the rest of us. Right. And, and I would say some of these things, like I don't even know, like I don't know if I order one test, one lab versus another lab, whether that's creating more. But your medical director knows and the people who look at your targets and your billables at the end of the year know, and the people who design the policies in the practice or the hospital about what you're supposed to do and not do, they all know. And so you are sadly probably less insulated from this than you hope or right. than you wish. I think it's 100% true. I'm just, I feel like a lot of us who are seeing patients are ignorant of these prices, but the people above us, as you said, know what's going on and can push us to do certain things. And I would, I would say further, not just should, they are employed to do that. That is their job description. They are doing the job. Now, they're not malicious. They are doing the job that they were recruited and selected and hired to do. Right. And, and the fee-for-service, is that something that's recent, or has this been true of our healthcare system for decades? It's been true for decades. I mean, I think the move toward preferred provider organizations and managed care are attempts at chipping away at it, right? The DRG movement for Medicare for hospitals in the 80s, right, was a way to move away from it. So we've been chipping away from it. The thing is, as healthcare prices have risen, and has the menu of treatment options grown enormously, the incentives have become more and more distorted because there's so much more money to make per thing. We didn't used to have proton beam therapy for prostate cancer. We didn't used to have biologics and protein drugs and infusions. I can go on and on. You can go on and on. But we have these amazing technologies that we didn't have a generation or two ago. And that just exacerbates the fee-for-service incentive. Hmm. David, you mentioned this in employer-based kind of healthcare insurance, which I think a lot of people really love because it's basically tax-free in a way, and it's a way for employers to get employees and offer them these incredible benefits. I think some people point to this as one of the reasons that healthcare costs have exploded. Do you think that's true? And, and is there an alternative to doing this? Yeah, so kind of classic undergraduate microeconomics, right? You buy things until the price ratio equals the marginal benefit ratio. And if I give you a discount on one good for versus another, 
you're going to keep consuming that good more until the benefit of the next unit gets smaller. And so the fact that many things you buy, most things you buy, you buy with after-tax income, but you buy health insurance and, and therefore healthcare with pre-tax income is going to twist you toward more healthcare and less other things because of the, the tax structure. The ACA actually had a provision to deal with this called the Cadillac tax, which was going to at some point start taxing health insurance benefits. This was hated by the right because it's a tax. It was hated by the left because often unionized employees are the ones who have the fanciest, most expensive health insurance plans. I, Until more recent events, I have not seen a consensus in my profession about anything as much as there was about keeping the Cadillac tax, but no one liked this except for economists, and it has it no longer is in effect. Let's talk a bit about Medicaid. You've done some really interesting work on Medicaid expansion and divorce rates. How did you come to look into the effects of Medicaid expansion on divorce and tell us about what you found? Yeah, I think there was a Nicholas Kristof column around the time of the ACA that talked about like a couple getting divorced to get one of them on Medicaid, right? Because the challenge is, you know, I think especially left of center, we want to take these limited program dollars, right? We never get enough public funding for the programs we want. And therefore, we want to get it to exactly the right people work and have the most good. That both creates an enormous administrative burden because figuring out who the right people are takes a lot of time and a lot of effort on, on all sides. But also, it can create these perverse incentives because if you have too much assets, you can't qualify. And because so much of what we do in the US is based on the household unit, right? These retirement assets, for example, are for both people. And if you've got a situation where you've got a sick 60 some year old and a healthy 60 some year old, right? If you drain their joint assets, to get one of them on Medicaid, the other one could wind up, first of all, without a partner, and then without the assets they needed for the rest of their life, which you know easily could be another 20 years. And so couples are actually starting to get divorced to get onto Medicaid. Hard to get numbers on how prevalent this was because nobody wants to talk about it. Certainly, if you Google estate planning attorney, help me with medical divorce, you'll find lots of people who will sell you their services to help you. So we heard about this. We started looking into it. Right. We tried to use college graduates as a, as a proxy for, um, for individuals who might have enough wealth for this to matter. We looked at various wealth distributions and actually found that Medicaid expansion reduced divorce prevalence among the 55 to 64 age college-educated population. And then kind of in the life cycle of a paper, right, it starts with anecdotes. You look in the broad data as representative. You put your study out. And then people come up to you and say, that's my story. Say, that's my story. Or say, when my dad was sick, they told my parents to get divorced, but they didn't do it. Now, that story is not in the data because they didn't actually do it. They just considered it. And certainly nobody's measuring, like nobody's surveying social workers in hospitals and saying, how often do you recommend this? But we started hearing more and more that this was people's story. And again, it comes back to this, I think, good intention to target our federal dollars and our state dollars where they can do the most good, but that creates perverse incentives. Hmm. So the idea here is that People don't want to give up all their assets to pay for expensive like medical care for someone who gets a horrible stroke or something. It's not pay for it. They have to give it up to be eligible for public assistance for mm. that individual. I see. Um, either because they're below the Medicare eligibility age or because there are gaps in Medicare that, that this is not covering. And they want to get, you know, this sick person who's probably never going to work again, they want to get them the health care they need and find a way to pay for that without putting the healthy spouse in a situation where they don't have enough assets to cover their retirement. I mean, this, this is certainly an upper middle class problem, 
but it's not a one percenter problem. Right. Because those medical bills will drain someone's entire life savings, you know, probably for a very short time. It, it's not just the bills will dra- drain it. It's the you have many public assistance will often not come in until you have drained your assets. And do we have any sense of the rates now versus what they were before Medicaid expansion? I mean, our papers suggest that, that it went down. It's, it, we're, we're really measuring it two or three de- degrees of indirect. So let's talk a little bit more about Medicaid. And I think the right likes, likes to cite this 2013 New England Journal of Medicine paper looking at random assignment in Oregon in 2008 to Medicaid or no Medicaid. And they followed these patients out to see what their health outcomes were like. And they reported basically no improvement in physical health outcomes in the first two years between those with and those without Medicaid. And again, I think Medicaid's critics like to cite this paper. I've seen it cited kind of in popular articles about Medicaid. And you've written elsewhere in Econofact in particular that you think Medicaid expansion works. We talked a little bit about it, maybe decreasing the medical divorce rates. But in what ways, in what other ways do you think Medicaid expansion works? So first of all, I read recommend these individuals read the rest of the papers that group wrote and the rest of even that paper. Right? This is Amy Finkelstein out of MIT and a, a large set of co-authors, Kate Baker, Joe Newhouse. And so, first of all, they find that people's self-reported health actually goes up substantially, which matters. People think they are healthier in part because they are exposed to less financial risk. And they don't just speculate about that. They actually look at people's credit files and find that, that being eligible for Medicaid actually makes people's household financial situations better. So I think this idea that like health insurance is all about health or all about medical use is really quite too narrow, right? Because the other thing we want it to be about is we want families to not be exposed to these huge financial tail risks to pay for healthcare, right? That in some sense, it's consumption insurance, not health insurance, um, and so I think that the, the Medicaid expansion, right, so this is not the Oregon one in the late aughts, but the ACA one is probably the most studied thing I've ever seen in health economics. The Kaiser Family Foundation has a couple of really amazing literature reviews. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of studies. Um, and if you look at those studies, right, they, they, the, the majority does find better health outcomes than finds worse or no health outcome change. And a majority do find self-reported health increasing. But most of actually what they're finding is on the financial side, that access to health insurance makes households in a better financial situation than they otherwise would be. So I think that looking only at health and measured health is really far too narrow a measure than, you know, did you skip medication because you couldn't afford it? Or did this make your household able to weather other shocks? Or did you less likely to go into delinquency or default on your mortgage. I think those broader measures, which we as a society should care about, are also really important. It makes sense. Uh, the One of the things that people also have pointed out is that the Medicaid reimbursement rates are really low. And so what happens is physicians end up, or hospital systems end up turning away patients who are you know solely on Medicaid. How do you see us addressing that issue? Because I imagine if, if it's true that physicians would lose money from taking patients who are on Medicaid, then it's a totally reasonable decision economically to turn those patients away. So a couple things. The first is the question is, what's the valid counterfactual? 
Meaning if you're providing uncompensated care to a patient in a hospital, Medicaid looks great. It's a lot more than zero. One. Two, the ACA actually had a provision that addressed this, that for a couple of years had primary care pay Medicare rates, not Medicaid rates. It's called the fee bump. Um, and there were a couple of studies, especially at the University of Pennsylvania, that uh, Michael Richards and Dan Polsky and others did, where they did these secret shoppers, where you call and you say you have a certain kind of insurance before and after, and you see if you can get an appointment. And it did substantially help people get appointments. Now, the most amazing study on this looked at IRS data and matched it up to the federal licensing that Medicare does for physicians. You, know, you, have, you probably have an MPI number, maybe several, a national provider identifier. So they matched up those two things. So now we can actually look at physician tax returns. And what they found, first of all, was that about a third of physicians' income is coming from retained profits as the business owners of their practices, as opposed to as wage income. But the second thing they found is that physicians in these private settings, actually their profits went up during the fee bump. Whereas physicians who are in salaried situations or in non-for-profit situations or ones where they don't have retained earnings, their profits didn't go up. So that's to say that, that raising the reimbursement rates, a good bit of that is actually going into physician income, much more so than we would have thought. Right. One of the other points I think some folks have made is that the hospital systems themselves, even the non-for-profit systems, and we had Danielle Elfrey on the podcast, and she kind of made this point, and Ovik Roy on the podcast made this point, so it feels like it's an agreement between left and right, that these institutions are monopolies in some way. They're able to raise prices without consequences, and they retain their not-for-profit status. I wonder if this ties to the Medicaid issue as well. I think there's a couple of things. One of them is, so, so Steve Parente, who is Minnesota, who was in the Trump CEA, did a lot of amazing work on price transparency and actually got, you're probably aware of this, got laws passed that hospitals have to disclose their prices. Now, hospitals, amazingly, there was this Wall Street Journal article that those websites had code in them so Google couldn't find them. And so, but I think we're now only starting to figure out how to work with that data. Right now, the Federal Trade Commission doesn't have to use discovery to get those prices and try to target it. They actually have it all now and can look much more closely at this. So like something like Limor Daphne from Harvard, who was the deputy director of the FTC for antitrust, healthcare antitrust, has worked on this as well. I think if you talk to pretty much anybody in the kind of industrial organizations, healthcare space, they will tell you the FTC is woefully underfunded, under-resourced, and that we should have much more robust healthcare antitrust work than what we have now. We're doing the, the Biden administration is focused a lot more on tech antitrust. There's a lot to do on healthcare antitrust, both on the provider side and on the insurer side. When we think of cost cutting and cost saving in the medical field, we don't always jump to ambulances as an issue. And it seems like emergency medical transportation is absolutely necessary. A naive question might be, well, what waste or fraud could possibly be found in an ambulance rides to the hospital? But over the last decade, a significant amount of reporting has been done, not only on surprise billing from ambulances and emergency transportation, but the incredibly exorbitant cost for patients. And as early as 2013, the New York Times reported charges to patients who called an ambulance of almost $1,800 
though 40 years ago, according to the Times report, they were often free of charge. And then back in 2013, ambulance rides cost our system $6 billion a year, up from $2 billion in 2002. During the COVID pandemic, Sarah Cliff wrote a piece for the Times about the urgent transfer of a sick COVID patient from actually one Philadelphia hospital 20 miles away from another, and it cost over $50,000. I know there's been recent legislation prohibiting, as you mentioned, surprise medical billing from out-of-network providers, but my understanding is that ambulances were a notable exception to this, and in a lot of states, there is no cap on what ambulance companies can charge. I know you've described a personal experience with opting for Uber transportation rather than ambulance, and that seemed to inspire you to study the question of how ambulance use shifted because of Uber. Can you tell us the story and, and about your research? And Yes, and then I want to say more broadly about the question of ambulances. So the story was that when my wife went into labor, we live in Center City, Philadelphia, like five o'clock in the morning. You can't like walk out and catch a cab. It's not like New York City. Our friends were all asleep right? Zip car, like you have to bring it back to that spot or the bill would keep running. And so we called an Uber. We get in the Uber and my wife's like, play it cool. He won't know I'm in labor. And so we're on Walnut Street, which goes the wrong way from Pennsylvania Hospital. Um, So he takes a left and then we're expecting another left to go the right way from Pennsylvania Hospital and he blows past it. And I'm thinking like worst night to be kidnapped by our Uber driver. Goes by the next street, which goes the wrong way and then turns left. And he says, look, I have three kids at home. I understand your situation. This is a much smoother street than the other one. Wow. And so, you know, I, like, what's my dream of what emergency transportation should be? An ambulance is like the most resource-intensive thing we have. It's like a mobile ER. That Sometimes that is an amazing, life-saving piece of technology. Often that is extremely inefficient use of limited resources. So there's a Black Mirror episode where, like, somebody calls the equivalent of 911 and these are, this is why everybody's got these contact lenses where they're, they're recording everything. And they ask, you consent to us getting the feed from your contact lenses so we can see what's going on. So my dream is like, you call 911. They say, do you consent to us getting the feed from your Apple Watch? And please turn on the camera on your phone. And then they use all of that data to look at a menu of options. Maybe you do need an ambulance. Maybe you only need a cop car with lights and sirens driven by an EMT with a defibrillator and a first aid kit. Maybe you only need an Uber car that drives you know, normally, but is driven by an EMT. Maybe you need an Uber car driven by a regular guy with no first aid training. And maybe you can see somebody in the morning. But I'd love to like move toward a continuous system where we can push triage a little farther upstream to, to the actual that moment when you call 911 and they can help you get the right thing so that we can reduce ambulance not just reduce ambulance usage, but actually reduce ambulance waiting time for people who really need it. Okay. The issue with surprise medical billing and ambulances is actually two different issues. So I had thought that this is really kind of a classic monopolist overcharging where you have these single provider ambulance services and they are intentionally staying out of network because they can, because they can charge you more that way and they can get away with it. And you know, you don't, this is like the best example I can think of where you do not have time to shop around. You don't have time to price compare. This is a not a competitive market at all, not a full information efficient market. You need an ambulance right now. And you are incredibly vulnerable at that point to being price capped. said this on a podcast, and I got a very angry email from somebody in Colorado whose job it is working for the county, for the public ambulance company there, to maintain their relationship with insurers. The person said, 
for the public ambulance. So in here in Lawrence, Kansas, in Douglas County, Kansas, we have a public ambulance company and they are not a network for any private insurance. They're only a network for Medicaid and Medicare. Now, as a public employee here on private insurance or pseudo private insurance, um, I think this is ridiculous and I wish our benefit people would fix it. And if they listen to this podcast, please fix it. But one of the reasons they haven't fixed it is the county doesn't have enough funding to employ someone to manage all the insurance contracts. It would basically take a full-time employee the whole year, every year, to manage all of those negotiated contracts with all the different private insurance options. So one of the reasons that that the ambulance companies are out of network is because we, as local taxpayers, are not willing to pay slightly higher local taxes to fund them employing someone to keep our ambulance prices down. That we are some combination of risk-loving and kind of dystopian small government addicts that we just won't do this. And that to me is like a deeply sad, like civilization failure. We can't get this one to work. Can you tell us about the the research you did about Ubers and ambulances? Is there any possibility that ride-sharing will put downward pressure on ambulance costs for patients? It's a great question. So what we did was we looked at 100 different cities in the U.S. that rolled out UberX at different times over a couple of years. And we worked with a company called Nemsis that aggregates up ambulance volumes across the country. And we matched the two of these up and we looked within locations over time and found that when Uber became available, ambulance volume went down about 7%. Because, again, as I mentioned before, with kind of anecdotes coming out of the end of research, as soon as we did this, my ER doc friends called me and said, yeah, of course we know this, right? And, and you know, the, the amazing news agencies that cover it could find Uber drivers who did this and find people who took Ubers to the, to the emergency room. Because sometimes you're fine, except your driving leg is swollen and you can't drive. And you want, you know, you want to get an ultrasound to make sure you know what, like you're the physician, to whatever you need to get, to make sure you have a blood clot or whatever it is, but you can't drive yourself. And, you know, your spouse has to be home with your kid who's asleep or there's nobody else in the house or whatever the issue is. You don't need to get there. I mean, yesterday, my car was being fixed and it was done, but the shuttle that, that the Toyota dealer uses had, that was done for the day, and I called an Uber to go and pick up my car and drive back. This is an amazing service that, that didn't used to exist, right? I think, you know, when, when Aaron and I were in college, we were in college about, you know, a 20-minute walk away from the train station. And so you would call a cab to get to your train and you would leave enough time. You could call a second cab when the first cab didn't show up. And then you would just give up and walk and drag your luggage across town to the train station. Yeah. And now with an Uber, the ability to watch the car move towards you and confirm that somebody really has your reservation and to call and communicate with the driver, enormous value added. So do you see maybe Uber being incorporated into... Yeah. So, so I did talk to, to Johnson County, actually, which is the next county over on the Kansas City suburbs. Um, we did talk about integrating their ride sharing with actually some primary care data. There have been some experiments with coupons for Lyft and for Uber for primary care providers and looking at missed appointments. So there is some talk about this. I think Uber actually has their own Uber Health product. I've talked to them a little bit. So there is some movement in that direction of trying to incorporate these kind of low, relatively low-cost transportation into the healthcare system. So David, let's, um, let's do a little hypothetical here. Let's say the American people have elected you president, and in their infinite wisdom, they've also elected 70 senators and 300 members of, of the House of Representatives who will do whatever you tell them to do. So you have absolute power. 
What's your approach as an economist to make the U.S. healthcare system more efficient, more reasonable, more affordable, manageable, reformable? Can I have the state legislatures also? Yes, you can have you can have everything. Okay. So, so I think let me start small and then I'll move big. So, some of my research that we haven't talked about is in reproductive healthcare and the ways that limiting access to reproductive healthcare can not just affect birth rates, but also affect household financial situations and actually also affect preventive care that is offered in delivered through these clinics. So enshrining protections for reproductive health care nationally for those who want to make use of it is, is super important. Okay. Now, the, let me go back to the bigger question. And I want to step back and talk about kind of what, what is the problem we're trying to solve? The problem we're trying to solve is that you and I or let's say I, because you actually are a physician, but I, not a physician, wants to live a long, healthy life and doesn't actually know what healthcare I need when to do that because I didn't go to medical school. I got a different kind of doctor. So I need to work with a specialist or, or a general physician or someone who knows this that I don't. So at first order, we could pay that person two ways. We could say, I'll pay you for everything you do. They're going to say, okay, lots of stuff I can do. Let's do it all. Or we could say, I'll give you a fixed amount of money and to be my doc, and then you have to pay for things out of your end. They're going to say, okay, then we're not going to do anything. We're going to do very, very little. Only the most egregious things we have to do, and the rest I'm going to keep. So both of these don't work for, the, for opposite reasons. We need some way to incentivize my provider to take care of me as if my body were theirs, as if they live inside my body. And the way I'd want to do that, and nobody does this, but the way I would want to do it, is basically say, if you're my doc for a year, you get a little bit of money for being my doc, and, and you have to find a way to pay for all my health care. And then for every year of the rest of my life, whether you're still my doc or not, that I get healthier or stay as healthy as I am, you get money. So the, the idea being that I want to make you incentive compatible with me to keep me healthy. Now, we have to make it very little money up front and almost all the money later, or else you're just going to take the money and run. And we have to make sure to risk adjust it to where I am now so that you don't just, you don't just get patients who are healthy and going to stay healthy. Right? It has to be such that you know, it was relative to my health now. But the idea is then I go see you and then you say, okay, what, you know, I'm going to have to pay for everything I do to keep David healthy. But if I succeed to keep David healthy, I get paid money. So how do I figure out, as the provider, with all my provider knowledge, the most efficient ways to keep David healthy? That's the system I'd want to create. What do you think? That sounds pretty cool. What, what kind of, I guess, how would you do that policy-wise? Right. So, know, like what, so what I think thinking? I and many other health economists are totally done with consumer-directed health care and, and high deductible plans. Because turns out when you do that, and this has been well-documented, People just get less healthcare across the board. That non-physicians are actually terrible at knowing what is a good use of their money and what is not. So, you know, the, the kind of the UK model of the patient never sees a bill, I am very much leaning toward that direction, in part because I watch my sick friends who already have less leisure time because they're sick spend a lot of it managing the finances of their own healthcare. And it's a travesty. Right? We gotta stop doing that. Um, and so that's going to, I mean, what I'm describing, right, it's going to take single payer. It's going to take completely operable, nationalized healthcare records, right? Because how do I know? You move across the country, 
How does the doc you had in New York, how do they even know that you're still healthy, right? It's got to be all documented and measured and integrated, right? If you show up in the ER for something that I came to have you treated by, that should ding your future payments because you didn't do enough potentially to prevent that from happening. It also would take a whole financing system on the background because you as the provider would have to find the money to pay for my healthcare now that you're getting the dividends for later. We need a reinsurance system because, you know, if you take a bunch of patients and they all, you know, they all have bad draws and such that bad things happen, no matter, even though you did everything right, you don't want your practice to go out of business. So there needs to be some kind of reinsurance on the back end. We need to do a lot of those things. But I think make a single system like that, even though the system itself would be quite complex on how all the payments work, we would remove a lot of the patchwork on insurance and on patient involvement uh, that we currently have. Got it. So you see a kind of like Medicare for all. I, I know that's... I think it's actually, it, it's, it's actually it's closer to Medicare Advantage for all than Medicare for all. Because Medicare for all is all kinds of things, right? There's fee-for-service, you know, the Part B, right? Physician-administered cancer drugs, right? On regular Medicare, you got to pay 20% of that until infinity, right? So, so Medicare Advantage, where you're actually bundling and, and having a single payment, risk-adjusted payment that goes to the insurer, right? That More in that direction, plus this piece that nobody does on kind of the lifetime payments for keeping your patients healthy. Hmm. The Medicare Advantage model does incorporate some like private insurance, right? And that's sure, a absolutely. combo kind of thing. And so you see the the advantage there being that the government says, we're just going to give you this fixed amount of money and you have to basically do the right thing with it. it again, in the extreme, that means that that puts you, that has a huge inaction bias. Right, that's like you send your kid to buy groceries and say you can keep the money you don't spend and they don't buy groceries. Or there was there was like a home improvement episode where the kids bought all dented discounted cans and kept the money. That but that's not actually what you were trying to do. Right, right. Interesting. Very cool. Well, David, thanks so much for taking the time today to come on the podcast. Look forward to to more of your research and, and writing. I want to plug one more thing. Please. Because you own. might say everything you just said is totally implausible. Tell me actually something that would really work. And what I would direct you toward is a website called 1% Steps, which is a website that uh, Zach Cooper at Yale and others did that lists a dozen, two dozen different things that reduce healthcare spending by about 1% each. But the idea is that without all the state legislatures and you know veto-proof majorities in the House and the Senate, you're going to need to do smaller things that are plausible. And actually, the first one on that list that we already discussed was the out-of-network billing legislation in 2020. But there's many more things on there, and I encourage you to read that and to pick your favorite one. I want to say one other thing on Medicaid expansion that I forgot to mention, which is, even though that those studies did not show as much in the early years, if you look a little farther, some amazing researchers wanted to look at mortality. So how do you look at mortality? Because Medicaid affects a very specific population, generally a low, by, de- by definition, a low-income population, but broadly also a population with less educational attainment. But the mortality data we have at the federal level, right? You, have, you can't just use surveys for mortality. You have to use broad data. That data doesn't have the demographics to look at the right population. And so they got the census to merge mortality data from Social Security with survey data that had education and income. And then they could look at mortality. 
And they found that mortality from kind of internal causes, kind of medically treatable and preventable things, went down among the 55 to 64 age population that was either low educational attainment or low income. And they actually even did this by, by state. And at least the estimate for Kansas, for example, was 72 fewer deaths per year that would have happened from Medicaid expansion. Really cool stuff. David. Thank you. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Hope to talk to you again soon. My pleasure. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.